Remembrance Day and Remembrance Week, of course, being marked very differently this year because of COVID, the impossibility or difficulty of gathering together. But it does not mean that we can't stop and remember, look back and look forward. It is true that history is a bit of a minefield these days, uh, but I think it's important that we understand it. Tim Cook is a historian at the Canadian War Museum. He's authored dozens and dozens and dozens of articles, but also 13 books. And his most recent one is The Fight for History, because this year marks the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II. And his book is about 75 years of forgetting, then remembering, and then remaking our our story of Canada's Second World War. So, Tim, thank you for coming back and and being with us again and, and looking at a more uh, I guess the time since then, and and we talked in the in our last conversation about um, when we bec- moved from the sense of being warriors to the sense of being peacekeepers, and why people thought uh, that we couldn't do both, or that you can't keep the peace if you can't make the peace, and you need warriors to do that. One thing that has always so troubled me in this country and it's because I've had a chance to travel and live elsewhere, is that we hide our military away from the general populations. You'd be hard-pressed to find a military base and therefore exposure to people in uniform, to know them, their wives and husbands, to know their children. Was it deliberate? Yeah, thank you, Senator, for being back on your show. Um, was it deliberate? Well, I, I suppose it was. It was a policy um, during the Cold War to to group uh, our Canadian Forces members on various bases, which which then tended to remove them from our broader society. Um, and so, part of that was a cost saving mm-hmm. measure, and part right. of that was a better ability to train. And so, there are operational reasons. But what it ultimately did was to remove many uh, people in uniform from from our broad cities and so that it seemed like we almost had no right. no army air force or navy even though uh, usually we've had between 60 and 100,000 members in as DND and, and and most of them in uniform so it um, it diluted some of that and it also created I think in the families, and I've been lucky uh, at the War Museum where I'm a historian, as you've mentioned, I've been able to speak to veterans, uh, those who served in the Canadian forces, those who continue to serve, their families, occasionally their children, um, that that they too um, have been a, a group unto themselves. And there is, as you know, you've spoken to so many in your life, mm-hmm. there, is a, there is a culture there just as there is a soldier's culture that is not easy for people to understand, but it's a culture, I think, of survival. It's a culture of identity. It's a culture that can be difficult for others to break into because it really is a fairly small band of of Canadians. The question of, and I've had people tell me this, not only regular soldiers, but people that work at 
D&D, National Defense Headquarters, that they were actually instructed at different times, and I'm thinking of Mogadishu and, and, and other periods like that, where they were instructed to wear civilian clothes to work and change into uniforms once in the building. That's to me uh, is just horrifying. Yeah, I, I've heard the same stories. I've been told by veterans it's, that happened certainly in the 1990s. I think when um, when when really traditional Pearsonian peacekeeping died, and it died in the killing fields of Rwanda and in the former Yugoslavia as it broke apart into ethnic violence and um, in Somalia mm-hmm. and. Uh, that really was a dark period. You know, if we look at Canadian military history, the members of the Canadian forces, there were scandals. There was uh, really just a, a starvation wage paid to our, our our service members, some of whom had to deliver pizza, you know, to just simply put food on the table for their families. And so it was a dark period. And, um, uh, you know, I, I think... Um, Things have improved with our Canadian forces, um, and yet there is still a, a very strong sense in Canada, I think, um, that we are a nation of, of peacekeepers. Mm-hmm. That, um, you know, as I've always said, and I said on your previous program, I'm, I'm very proud of the role that Canada has played in bringing peace and hope to parts of the world. And yet we're not just a nation of peacekeepers. That's actually for quite a limited time in our history. Basically, the second half of the 20th century, I think, as I said in your previous show, we we fought six wars in the 20th century. The South African War, the Great War, the Second World War, the Korean War, uh, the Cold War, um, the Kosovo bombing campaign in 1990, uh, sorry, 1999, before that, the Gulf War in 1990. So, that's a lot of war for a, a country that, that sees itself as a, a nation of peace. I had the uh, extraordinary opportunity, and I will put it that way, to travel to Afghanistan on four different occasions. Uh, part of the five-person manly panel to go over and, and try and assess what our role should be. Uh, and to watch it develop over time was great. We recommended airlift and, and the government of the day uh, responded and did do that. But when we arrived there the first time, I've got to say, our, our soldiers were in, um, in uh, fatigues that were not desert fatigues. I mean, jungle fatigues, the wrong color. We, we were in uh, tanks that couldn't, or vehicles that couldn't have withstood uh, a set of birthday candles. Never mind, you know, IEDs in the um, in the road, and the road was littered with them. We were lucky enough at one point to be airlifted out of a FOB, a forward operating base, because two young guys who'd gone down the road before us had their legs blown off. I mean, honestly, it was. I was embarrassed and uh, as a Canadian that we had asked people to serve and to risk their lives and to do so without even the most basic of equipment to A, accomplish yeah. their mission and B, save their own lives. Yeah, it's, it's a historic theme, in fact, that you can trace throughout the 20th century and even earlier where we, we never put uh, much money into our, our military. We, we chose other things. Those are decisions that various governments have made over time. But if we think of in the First World War, where Canada entered that war grossly 
under-equipped and, right. and using things like the Ross rifle, which uh, didn't work on the battlefield and jammed um, without proper artillery or machine guns. And um, the same thing happened in 1939, where despite the fact of everybody seeing war coming with Hitler and the Nazis and the fascists, that Canada was again grossly unprepared for war, even though Canadians enlisted in tremendous numbers. And we can track that, you know, that that in times of war, and we talked about this on your previous um, discussion, uh, we, we can create an incredible industrialization and industrial mobilization, but it takes time. And we have often let our military rust out is, is a phrase mm-hmm. that has been Absolutely. used. And certainly the low point uh, most people point to is that period in the 1990s where uh, there was just very little for the Canadian forces. And, and of course, with 9-11 and then Canadians in Afghanistan from late 2001, uh, special forces, and then early 2002, as you said, many of them ill-equipped with all manner of just basic material uh, and equipment that they needed that they absolutely needed. Such an extraordinary um, group of people. I remember sitting there one day, um, this was on a separate trip, but General McChrystal, Stanley McChrystal came in. Uh, John Vance, now the uh, chief of the defense staff, was was leading operations there. And we were sitting having a long conversation. and, And two things struck me is that he... And he was not a man who would uh, blow smoke, as it were. He he really was saying, "We need you because the kinds of things you can do, special in these, especially in these counterinsurgency operations, is that you travel in much smaller groups and you can go into smaller towns and villages and communicate with people. And Americans have to have complete force protection every time they move. So we yeah. are a very valuable ally um, yeah. in that sense." Canadian forces have always been uh, regarded as as among the best. And this, exactly. this goes back to the Great War, where Canadians were seen as the northern, the northern dominion um, soldiers who had been, and the Canadian soldiers like to play this up, been raised <laughs> in igloos and born with a rifle in their hand and fighting cold <laughs> bears. And um, and of course the British, they loved this, right? They they saw that these hardy Canadians, but but they were, they were hardy. Mm-hmm. They were um, you know, they they had grown up hard and, and uh, facing a Canadian winter in Saskatchewan is not an easy yeah. thing then or now. And in the Second World War, the same feeling that the Canadians were very good and hardy and that we had uh, that our fighting formations, either First Canadian Army or the Royal Canadian Navy or Bomber Command Six Group, uh, really played a key role. And that would continue in Korea and our peacekeeping reputation. And as you've said, in Afghanistan, where Canadian uh, service personnel are highly trained Uh, And often, as you know, we are engaged in training roles for other forces because we are so adept. And so there is a reputation there among the Canadian forces that that you can track over, well, even to the South African War. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's that's something. Well, even even today, people will say they'll always take a farm boy or a farm kid because they know how to fix stuff in the middle of the night when the the machine breaks. So they (laughs) they actually have that skill set. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the great things, uh, challenging things that always struck me about the Canadian forces in Afghanistan was 
their ability, and this must go to their incredible training, to be both combatants, to be warriors in the field, but also to be diplomats. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, to sit down and and to talk and to and also to defend um, uh, our civilians who were there, those who were involved in development programs. And I always thought, uh, personal opinion, but having read a lot of military history and having written a lot, we ask a tremendous amount of, of those in those um, unconventional war zones, mm-hmm. the, uh, the, the challenge of moving from war fighting to diplomacy to uh, force protection to building a school, to helping a water supply, to laying a road. And it's not always the Canadian forces, but they always have to be there or those other things simply can't happen. That I actually witnessed uh, myself again out on a, a, at a forward operating base where our troops had been out for two or three days on a, a mission. They had accomplished their mission. We do not know what the mission is because, of course, they didn't discuss that. But they came back to to base to camp and before they slept before they ate before they had a shower they went out and rebuilt a school that the Taliban had taken down that was just you know we're not going to let those SOBs uh you know win this one we're going to get that school up for tomorrow morning uh for the kids and and we had the ability to go into those schools and talk to the teachers and the and the young girls who had bare faces, who to that point had not been allowed to look at strangers or men or foreigners. I had to go into the school by myself and leave the other four guys out for the first trip. They did that without being ordered to, but because they felt they should. And it was it was part of their mission and part of their job. Yeah. And at the Canadian War Museum, where I'm very lucky to work, as, you, as you've mentioned, we have a new section on the Afghanistan mm-hmm. war. In fact, uh, from post-1991, I suppose, in the end of the Cold War, which my colleague, Dr. Andrew Birch, has curated and just a very powerful exhibition of the the artifacts and the stories of Canadians who have passed through those rotations. And we think of the 40,000 or so Canadians who served there. That's an incredible number. And just when I was speaking recently about my new book, The Fight for History, I, it was in a Zoom context like this. And I miss speaking speaking and seeing (laughs) people. But this gentleman, um, he, he reached he reached out to me and he said, you know, I'm an Afghanistan veteran, but I'm 55 years old. And he said, you know, when we think of veterans, he was he was in an early rotation, 2003 or four. And he was he was he was old by soldier standards right. at that point. But he said, you know, now we have Afghanistan veterans who are 45, 50, 55, maybe older. And uh, and he and we talked about the veterans experience, which is one that that is deeply interested to me. I've always wanted to know how have we treated our veterans? How have we helped to reintegrate them back into society with our two world wars, these wars that involved our total societies where the, the 620,000 who served in the great war, the 1.1 million in the second war, they were citizen soldiers. Uh, They came from our communities. And so how did we help them reintegrate and what happened to members of the Canadian forces and, uh, and with Afghanistan now, and well, we've had successes and we've had failures. Let's talk about that because we, we too there had a lot of reserve um, uh, 
often, you know, um, participants as well, teachers, people who had left their assignments as, as teachers or firefighters and had gone over. And of course, the RCMP were there. We, I think we pay a much greater lip service now uh, to the question of dealing with veterans and we have programs and it's integrated but we also see the veterans affairs minister post treated like a revolving door it's kind of low on the rung in terms of who is important um, people go there for training purposes or on their way out the door uh, and and it by that we kind of send a message that it's it's not always that important yeah i mean as a historian i'm always interested to use the past to help ground us in the present and, right. I, and those incredible stories. And I, one of the things that struck me in, in writing 13 books and curating a dozen exhibitions and, and other as, aspects of history is what is the debt? What is the debt that we owe our veterans? And that changes from society to society, from time period to time period, from generation to generation. And after the great war, we didn't do a good job in integrating our veterans back. They were flung back into society. There were very few jobs. The country was in, in tremendous turmoil in 1919 with strikes and unrest and fear of communist uprisings and, and labor, organized labor, uh, fighting for their uh, well-deserved rights. After the Second World War in 1945, we did a, vet, a better job with the Veterans Charter. We, we understood the Correct. importance of bringing veterans into society. And so there's two interesting contrasts of the debt. Um, and I think we have done a better job but by all historical accounts and by speaking to veterans. There was not much support for members of the Canadian forces who left during the Cold War and even the early part of the 21st century. It took Afghanistan and the growing awareness uh, among Canadians, uh, brought to light by very fine reporting, I think, of the epidemic of suicide as, mm -hmm. as it was labeled, and the, the deep emotional and invisible wounds that soldiers carry. And that's not unique to Afghanistan veterans. Of course, it's for all of our Canadians who have served in times of war. It doesn't mean every veteran carries uh, invisible wounds, but we know that enough have. And, and, and so what is the debt? Well, there is a physical, a debt to care for people physically, emotionally, and mentally. I think most Canadians would agree to that. How that is done is, is a tremendous a challenge for uh, governments of the day. But there is a second debt, and that debt, as we have seen with Remembrance Day, is one of remembrance and commemoration, and, and to ensure that the stories are not forgotten, stories of, of service and sacrifice, stories of young men who have been cut down and, and who never got to return home. Um, and I think that's a question I think that we as Canadians must grapple with. There are no easy answers, but in the end, what is the debt? That's such an important question. And, and we went to a field hospital there and I went to hospitals when I returned back to actually see the visual evidence of those that survive, but not always intact. And it is brutal. And, 
And I think that we need to be aware of both those levels of, of debt, as you say. I think we're starting to understand in a slightly better way the, the also the difficulty of, we call it transition to civilian life, but as, as one veteran pointed out to me, it's not transition back to civilian life. We were never there. We signed up mm. when we were 17 or 18 or we were kids. So right. we're going back into civilian life for the first time or going into civilian life. And they don't know what to do. They've been told what to wear. They've been told what time to get up. They've been told where they're going to live and where they're going to move and how they're going to serve. And then all of a sudden we say, okay, you're on your own. Um, yeah. So we really need to work uh, on that part. Yeah, I agree. And, and I think we have a much better sense. And Senator, I think... Uh, I think there's a tremendous resiliency I have found among members of the Canadian forces uh -huh. and yeah. ability to adapt and the constant moving and it's in all aspects of their life. And I, I do think we have a better sense now. I have a friend, Joel Watson, who's, who's involved in, in the important organizations that help to retrain and to remind Canadians that veterans have um, just brilliant skills that they exactly. bring very different skills. And, uh, you know, to return to history, since I'm a historian, it, you know, we, we have, we did that successfully after the second world war. That's the model. In fact, um, the, the government of the day passed the veterans charter, as it's called a, a series of legislation that retrained and offered loans to veterans and encouraged them to study at university. And that propelled us forward into the mm -hmm. wealthy half of the 20th century. There's other factors, of course, but taking care of, of veterans and helping them reintegrate is good for, for your economy. If yes. you want to be brutal about it, if you don't yeah. care about the debt, well, it's simply what you need in the second war case. You want those million veterans to return to jobs, which they did, and they built up our country. Watching. So Sorry, go ahead. No, I just think that there is a... Um, there is a, a, a practical nature here, putting aside the question of the debt and, and how we yeah. should repay through remembrance or what have you, that there is an obligation as well, many people would agree, um, to ensure a, um, a transition that makes sense. The and, two and things go hand in hand because what I witnessed in the United States when I lived there is that because the general public embraces the military, because they have more experience and exposure to it and with it, um, there is not there is a willing embrace by corporate or working America to understand what these men and women do and say, you know, if you can run an operation in Afghanistan, uh, you can probably run a department <laughs> at, you know, an auto manufacturer or even an insurance company, but certainly in the world of security. There, that, that movement between the two worlds is a lot more fluid. And I think we need to learn from that. If we're not exposed to them, we don't actually understand what their skill sets are beyond going to war and shooting guns when necessary. Yeah, I, I, I have to agree. Um, and I, I think that the difference probably in the two societies is, is just the number, of, mm -hmm, as mm -hmm. you would agree, right, yeah. of Americans who have served in really their two forever wars uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and how that has permeated their entire society. And um, interestingly, in, in Canada, up until about 2008, in survey polls, 
more than half of Canadians thought that Canadians were involved in the peacekeeping operation in, in Afghanistan. Yeah. That yeah. There was just not a, a great understanding of, of what our Canadian forces uh, personnel were doing there. I think that's changed. I think we have a better sense. And yet there's still a great ambivalence to, if we think of that war or, or even others, that it's, there is something about Canada that uh, we talked about in the previous broadcast, a podcast about how we see ourselves. And, um, you know, uh, I'm a military historian, and yet I don't think that we are a militarized nation by any means. No, we, exactly. we define ourselves in many ways, and I'm uh, through healthcare or through our different regions or our different languages or questions of. Uh, uh, indigeneity or what have you. There are many ways to think of ourselves and that has changed over time. Um, and I, I do think, however, as I, I've written about in, in my new book, The Fight for History, that the great silence that surrounded the Second World War for so long, we broke that. Um, and yet it took a long time and um, and it's it's an ongoing a challenge, I think, to know who we are as a people. I'm just curious about your own work for a moment, Tim. You you don't come from that military family that crisscrossed this country and living in 52 different towns and cities. Uh, a family member, one in the military. What what drew you to this? Yeah, I um, had a grandfather who served in Bomber Command during the mm-hmm. Second World War. He was from uh, Alberta, Gordon Cook, and <laughs> uh, grew up in, in the Depression, uh, Lethbridge, and, um, you know, very, very little future. And he joined the RAF as a Canadian and served all six years. And so that's always been something that has interested me. But I think um, I didn't grow up in a, in a family of forces or anything like that. My parents were both accomplished historians. So, of course, Senator, when I went to university, <laughs> Trent University, I wanted to do anything but that. Uh, unfortunately, it's in the genes, I, I, apparently. <laughs> yeah, I, I majored in rugby my first two years. So I, I found that uh, history was something. Tremendous professors who excited in me the stories of the past through the people. And I've always approached the history through those eyewitnesses first through the poetry and the prose of the Great War, and then later through letters and diaries, and then understanding how war has shaped our country. And um, I went to the Royal Military College of Canada. I did my master's there. I went as a civilian, but I, I learned an awful lot. And I think, you know, it was a tremendous learning experience for me. And what, it, what I saw, I caught a glimpse of, I think, is that culture, the culture of those who have served. And I remember being at RMC and seeing the cadets who worked very hard. I mean, they had, they were tremendous in their studies, but then they would do their physical fitness and they would do drill in the summertime. They were off training at Gagetown or, or some other place. And I, I thought this is, this is quite remarkable. And it comes back a bit to what you were saying of how most of us are not exposed to, to members of the, those who serve, unless you're in a particular part of the country where there's a base or, or a, a large unit. And um, that opened up my eyes. And I've been very lucky, uh, as you've mentioned, I worked at the National Archives and then at the Canadian War Museum from 2001, where I was involved in, in creating the First of War Gallery. And I guess my, my underlying motivation has been to tell our stories. I, I see myself as a public historian. I have a PhD in history, but I'm really interested um, 
I'm interested in all Canadians knowing their history. And the story I tell is I used to play hockey and I would be in a dressing room and uh, someone say, oh, we saw you on TV last night. You looked good because it was history television from nine years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I was uh, younger then. (laughs) That's right. Always look great at 26. So, um, but I I got a sense that these were guys who were plumbers and uh, business guys who probably wouldn't pick up a history book but they wanted their history through television or a podcast, not back then, but yeah. uh, you know, the many ways that we can tell our stories through a museum. And I, I believe that's important for us to create the opportunities for Canadians, elderly, you know, whatever age, young people to learn about our history. It's important. Uh, and I'm, I'm not suggesting it needs to be, and it shouldn't be just heroic history, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not, I don't want us to stand behind the flag. No, no, we can tell the real stories. Yeah. We need to tell the real stories, warts and all, and yet it should not just be the warts. And and we are in a period now where, for a number of societal reasons, we, we have been drawn to the stories of oppression dark stories, stories of hurt. And, and they are there in the past as they are in every country. And uh, I think it's important for us to talk about those and to work through them. And yet there are also times, and I'll just speak to military history. If we think of the second world war, 1.1 million Canadians coming together to serve in the forces. That's one in 10 Canadians, another 3 million who served in wartime industry, English Canadians, French Canadians, new Canadians, indigenous Canadians coming together to do something hard and to pay the price 45,000 Canadians killed, and yet we did it. And that's a story that I think we need to know as Canadians. I want to ask you this from your point of view as a historian and somebody who lives in the world of the new technology. I know you've said that history can be dangerous. Governments are often afraid of it. It stirs passions up. It has become a minefield where the statues of heroes are being torn down. Uh, I think it's hard to know <laughs> how to tell these stories and and deal with all the political correctness or wokeness or whatever you want to call it that permeates today and our ability to have these conversations. But the importance, contrasts that with the importance, as you say, of understanding where we came from because it is who we are. Yeah, I think I think you've said it nicely there. Conversations. We must have them. We can't shut down each other. We can't silence each other. We can't cancel our history. Um, We need to address on the same hand, we need to address the past and the Uh hurt and the pain when it's there. But as I've already said, that doesn't mean that those are the only stories we should tell. And I think that itself is wrong and, and, and not historically minded. Now, you're speaking to someone who spent 25 years writing about our history. I'm biased here. I believe it's important to tell these stories. I, I want us to know the past. And, and as, as I have often felt, if we don't tell the stories, no one else will. And so let us engage in these conversations, but respectfully and, and even with passion, yeah. but to understand that it probably does little good to simply cancel out things that we find offensive today uh, for people in the past uh, who lived 50, 100, or 150 years ago. We need to remember 
that they lived in a different time and a different society. They had different education. They didn't live through the rights revolution like we have from the 1980s. We are fundamentally different as, as Canadians and, in fact, in most of the Western world because of the rights revolution. And part of the job of being a historian, part of what I try to do is to situate the historical characters that I write about in the past, to to explain to my readers why they felt that way. And and it can be from all kinds of things, from education, the region they came from, the prejudices of the time, which were many deep and Mm -hmm. full and often that would shock us. And yet they were living their lives. And we need to understand that when we, when we condemn the past by the standards of the present, we're not doing anything related to history. It may be something else. Um, And I understand if certain people or groups carry deep grievances and, and, and hurt and pain and that, that they are doing that for, uh, for something to make it right in their own mind. That's a different thing than engaging in history uh, as I see it. It's just been so uh, wonderful to speak with you about this and get inside your head uh, because you've got it all there. And, and we're so grateful that you are telling our story, particularly the, the military history of this country. So the most recent book, but, uh, but any of them, I'm telling you, The Fight for History, 75 Years of Forgetting, Remembering, and Remaking Canada's Second World War, um, and the show, the production you've got at the museum now, which will be there. Hopefully, people will be able to come to Ottawa again and, uh, and do that. So we really thank you so much for your time and your willingness to share this. Thank you, Senator. Thanks, Tim. We've all got to remember always that we today live in the land of the free because of the brave. Thanks for being with us on this special Remembrance Day week edition of No Nonsense.